This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. Welcome, Ali members, campus colleagues, and community members. Uh, today's topic is based on UC Berkeley's Native American repatriation and renaming and unnaming efforts. It is a part of Ali's speaker series called America's Unfinished Work. Um, the leading thinkers from campus engaged in the examination and eradication of systemic racism to create a more human, just, and equal society. Today's speaker is Associate Vice Chancellor for Research, Linda Haverty Rugg. We have known her well at UC, at UC Berkeley's OLLI, where she has been um, the professor of Swedish literature in, Scandinav- in the Scandinavian department, bringing courses to Ali on all sorts of related topics in literature and film, the eco-cultural criticism of the Nordic lands and many other relevant pieces. Her present research engages with the work of two Swedish brothers who arrived in the Delaware River Valley in 1712 The particular focus of this encounter is with the Native Americans and the natural environment of North America. So right now, I'd like um, also to mention that Professor Linda Rugg was also a distinguished uh, teaching award winner with Ali at Berkeley, given her her relationship with us. So now um, we will have a presentation uh, by Professor Rugg, Associate Vice Chancellor Rugg, um, for the next 45, 50 minutes. Hopefully, we'll have a few minutes at the end for questions, which we will ask you to put into the chat room. So with no further ado, Linda Rugg. Thank you, Susan. Um, I was asked to speak today, as you may have guessed, because I'm a long-term instructor for the Osher Lifelong Learning Center and also because I now occupy a position in the, admin, in the administration where I'm part of an effort to change a long pattern of delay and obstruction on the part of the university and frustration and hurt and righteous anger on the part of Native Americans regarding repatriation. Um, I began this work in 2018, and when I started my present position, I had never heard of NAGPRA, which is an acronym I'll, I will explain shortly. And I was not aware of the experience of Native Americans, uh, particularly Native Californians with our university. I've now had the chance to meet with Native people at conferences and in meetings, both in their ancestral lands and on campus and virtually. And I have felt their anger and their sorrow at the treatment they and their ancestors have received. And I wanna say that I'm deeply sorry for what we have done as individuals and as a community to cause this injury. I had a chance to scan the attendance sheet for this event before speaking today. And I realized that there are a lot of people sitting in the audience who know more about me um, more than I do 
um, that about NAGPRA, uh, about California history, about Native American history, and certainly about Native American life. And so I want to stress that I'm not speaking today out of a position of, of great knowledge and great authority, um, but I'm going to offer my perspective on the work of repatriation and the acts of naming and renaming and, and unnaming and tell you what we've been trying to do to restore justice. Uh, but speaking out of my own position also means bringing something of my background into this mix. And so I, I wanna share with you um, an image. It's actually a story that has played out in my mind as I've been working on repatriation in the university. Um, I am in the Scandinavian department, but first I, that my first foreign language that I learned was German. And this is a story that I often think about. It's, it cre it's a, a powerful image for me of what it's like to approach the university as a native person and how the university holds its power. It's a story called Fordham Gazettes Before the Law. And it was written by Franz Kafka in 1915. Uh, it begins, Fordham Gazette steht on Tierhüter, which means before the law stands a gatekeeper. A man from the country comes to this gatekeeper and asks for permission to be granted access to the law. But the gatekeeper answers that for now, it is not possible. Having thought about this, the man asks if it would be possible later on. Maybe, says the gatekeeper, but not now. In this little parable, the man from the country is kept waiting so long to be permitted to present his case that he dies. It is my hope that because the Native American people have persisted and have held up a mirror to the gatekeeper, which is the university, which is me and others, and show us what we have done and what we are doing, I hope that we can change the ending to this story. Um, I'm going to now come finally to my talk, um, but before I do that, I want to take a moment to recognize that UC Berkeley sits on the territory of Huchin, the ancestral and unceded land of the Chechenyo-speaking Ohlone people, the successors of the sovereign Barona Band of Alameda County. This land was and continues to be of great importance to the Moekma Ohlone tribe and other familial descendants of the Barona Band. It's vitally important that we not only recognize the history of the land on which the university stands, but also we recognize that the Moek Maloney people are alive and flourishing members of the Berkeley and broader Bay Area community, communities today. This land acknowledgement is an abridged version of a co-created one by the Moek Maloney tribe and native student development, and it's a living document, so it can change as we go forward. And this is a recreation, an image of an Ohlone village. First, I'll talk about the ancestors and their sacred belongings. UC Berkeley holds the ancestral remains of more than 9,594 Native American individuals. That looks like a very exact number, but it's deceptive. Um, I have read the work of uh, uh, Tony Platt as a historian, I'll reference him later. And uh, Tony uh, points out that, uh, that this is probably an, a significant undercount because uh, this, the same, there, there will be um, a count that counts a, a box 
um, a, a burial site and there may be several individuals in that burial site, for example. So it's probably an under count. Of that 9,594, more than 9,000 were taken from California. So the, the holdings of the university, the ancestral remains are predominantly Californian. And more than 2,000 of them come from Alameda County where the university is sitting. Um, and I should say that about two thirds of these, of these uh, remains were um, taken from the counties around the Bay Area, um, about five counties. I wanted to also point out that the creek that runs through the campus was site of an Ohlone settlement. So as we walk across campus every day, we're actually walking um, on the land that was uh, occupied by the, the Ohlone people. And also the university holds in addition to ancestral remains about 122,000 sacred belongings that were taken from Californian tribes. This is an image of the Emeryville Shell Mound. Some of you may be familiar with this, um, where the Emeryville Mall now stands at that area by the bay. There used to be an enormous uh, shell mound. A shell mound was a place where the, the native people of this area um, buried their dead. It was a sacred site. And you can see that a dance pavilion was built on top of this mound. And before later it was destroyed. Um, and, and there was a mall put there. Um, and the, the ancestors that were buried in this mound, many of them are in the, in the uh, university's holdings. How did they get, how did the ancestors and the sacred belongings get to the university? <laughs> I'm going to give the very broad, basic historical background of that is, was, of course, the gen, gen, a genocide, uh, a dislocation of tribes. Um, California natives were targeted, especially during the United States period. For, um, for actual killing and dislocation, um, cultural genocide, and so on. Uh, Native Americans were viewed as a dying or disappearing race. Um, and so there, that was an excuse. They would say, oh, we need to collect these things because the people are dying. Um, and so that was one of the motivations for collection. This was all predicated on the fact that Native Americans were viewed as racially inferior and they lacked legal standing. So people did things to the remains and the belongings of Native American people that they would not have allowed each other to do to the remains of European colonists, for example, or American colonists. There was a drive, especially around the turn of the century and the beginning of the 20th century um, toward collection and exhibition. And this was something that um, pushed forward the amassing of this enormous amount of, um, of these enormous amounts of ancestral remains and belongings. And the, the development of anthropology as a discipline within the university um, also led to a drive to collect and amass a large number of ancestral remains and uh, belongings. And one of the disciplines, the sub-discipline in um, anthropology was uh, craniometry, which is the measurement of skulls. And very frequently this was used in a, in a racist context, uh, distinct, distinguishing between races. UC Berkeley anthropologists collected ancestral remains and belongings and they urged others to do so. I wanted to point you toward a book that has informed 
some of my understanding of what happened to California natives. Um, an American genocide was written by a colleague from UCLA, Benjamin Madley, and it tells the history of, um, of the native Californians and what happened to them under colonization. Um, this is a quote, the largest collection of Californian Indian material in the world. This is a quote from a museum director in 1989. And I wanted to, um, to reference, um, I misspelled Tony's name. It's not Tony Pratt. It's Tony Platt. My, my apologies, P-L-A-T-T. And Danielle Elliott, who put together a chronology. And I'm going to just give you a few beginning highlights of this chronology to give you a sense of it. Um, but it continues. So in 1873, South Hall, which is one of the oldest buildings on campus, or if not the oldest, opened up a room of the, called the Museum of Anthropology with skulls from the Pacific Coast. In 1875, UC actually announced that it was looking for sellers and donors to provide them with um, Indian antiquities, uh, skulls, as I was mentioning before, weapons and, uh, and other items. In 1902, um, with, with funding from Phoebe Hurst, our anthropology museum is named for her. The, um, the archaeologist Max Ulle, he's a German, led, uh, led in an excavation of the Emeryville Shell Mound, um, which I showed you there. And many burials were exhumed. And of course, um, these ancestral remains then were brought into the campus. In 1906, Alfred Kruber, with whom we will be talking about a little bit later, he's a very significant figure in anthropology, especially at UC Berkeley. Um, he reported that systematic collection of photographs and measurements of living Indians has been undertaken. And so not only were there measurements of skulls, but there were also measurements being done of the skulls and the bodies of, of living native Californians. And he planned to cover the entire state. Uh, Krober became, I misspelled his name too, sorry. Um, uh, Krober became the museum director in 1908. Um, and and uh, he's, we're going to talk a little bit later about the naming and the unnaming of, um, of Krober Hall. This, this um, chronology that, um, that Tony Platt and uh, Danielle Elliott compiled extends all the way into um, the 1980s when the university still accepted a few gifts. The collection mania continued um, through the 30s, I would say. Um, and one can follow uh, in this chronology how, how engaged um, amateur uh, collectors became. The university encouraged them and amateurs would go out and, and uh, find Native American ancestral remains and materials and give them to the university. Um, I think the essential point here is that the development of the collection was a response to a belief in the scientific value of Native American bodies and artifacts without regard to the feeling of Native American uh, surviving people. And it was part of, an, of, of university culture and academic practice. I mentioned that this timeline continues into the 80s. Um, Native American activism also starts up um, in the 60s, 70s, and, and 80s. And by 1990, there was a success uh, by Native uh, American activists in getting a law passed 
called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And that was the acronym NAGPRA that I was referring to earlier. This is their, this is the, um, the homepage for the NAGPRA website. It is a federal, um, a federal uh, office. So NAGPRA, what is NAGPRA? Um, as I mentioned, I mentioned what it stands for. Um, and the fact that it was the product of Native American act activism. Um, it requires that institutions like ours that are funded by federal law consult with tribes and create inventories and summaries of Native American ancestral remains and sacred objects that we possess with the, with the intention of returning them. Is, and so we can talk a little bit more about that. But the inventories and summaries then are, have to be sent to the tribes and to the federal government. And ancestors or belongings that have been affiliated, I'll talk about affiliation in a second here, um, and, and the notice has been given for at least 30 days. After that happens, legal and physical transfer can occur. So this is the process that was put into place to try to return to Native Americans, um, their, their ancestors and their sacred belongings. Now, NAGPRA is signed into law in 1990, as I mentioned. And in 1993, uh, Berkeley submitted uh, summaries. And a summary is just a general description um, of Native American funerary, funerary objects that have not, that, that now it gets into, now we get into some legalistic terms. They're called uh, unassociated funerary objects. And what that means is there are sometimes objects that were buried with an individual, but they have been separated from that individual and they're no longer, they're no longer together with the individual. So they're called unassociated. So unassociated funerary objects, um, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony. And that's a very broad category that can include a lot of different kinds of things. And you create a summary of these things uh, for the tribe to consult with you about. Um, let's see. So as I was mentioning earlier, UC Berkeley had, had accumulated an enormous collection and the collection was not very well organized or, or, or documented. There were a lot of paper records, things were in disarray. And so when the federal government required that the university create um, an inventory, an inventory is, is a simple object by object list of all Native American human remains and associated funerary objects, um, that the, the university was having a very difficult time doing so, both because of the the, the record keeping being in disarray, the very, very large number of uh, ancestral remains and objects that the university had collected, and also because the, the, the museum was understaffed, didn't, didn't really have the means. So they were trying to do this, but it was, they were not making it, so they had to ask for an extension. And then in 1998, they asked for a second extension, but the government didn't want to give them one. They threatened them with fines and so on. So there's a history of not being able to meet the demands of NAGPRA with our university. And in 2000, the university submitted um, its inventories. Um, at the time, though, when they submitted the inventories, um, I'm going to explain uh, explain something in a second, but, but really only 14% of, uh, of the 
of the collection was described as something that could be affiliated. I'll talk about that here in a second. So as I mentioned, they were understaffed, the records were in terrible shape. There had also not been a systematic physical survey. By that, you mean you have to go and you have to look into every box. You have to really be able to describe precisely how many individuals are there, what kinds of objects are there. There was sometimes a question of whether there was a whether there were animal faunal remains mixed in with the human remains. There were there were so the, the collection had not been surveyed adequately. Um, and as I mentioned before, um, as also as uh, Tony Platt mentioned in his work, the inventories don't necessarily re uh, represent a number of individuals, but burial lots. So there could be more than one individual within uh, within a burial lot. The federal government required two lists, and this is a, a significant point. It's a little bit difficult to follow. They, they, they required one list of culturally affiliated individuals and objects, um, which meant that the objects or the, or the individuals could be associated with a federally recognized tribe. Um, now in California, we have 109 uh, federally recognized tribes, but we have another 65, according to the Native American Heritage Commission. I'll talk about them in a second too. Uh, we have another 65 that are not federally recognized. And it happens that the tribes right around the Bay um, are to, to a degree, uh, many of them are not federally recognized. And you'll recall that I was explaining where the ancestral remains came from in the collection that we hold. A large proportion of those ancestors came from the land that where we sit. And the, the tribes that occupied those lands are not necessarily federally recognized. And so there's this other category called culturally unidentified which makes it sound as if we can't figure out who, who these remains are, or where they came from, but we knew where they came. We don't do know where they come from. It's just that it's not, they didn't, they didn't come from the ancestral land of a federally recognized tribe. So when, when the items were culturally unidentified, um, the tribes didn't have the same standing under the national law and couldn't bring cases in the same way. And so, so to a large degree, the university um, was able to not able to maintain these ancestral remains because they didn't, they weren't protected under federal law in the same way the culturally unidentified ones. And in fact, university policy up, uh, that was established, well, continuously up until very recently, until the new policy, um, researchers were allowed to do research and teach uh, using these culturally unidentified remains. 86% um, of, of the collection was not culturally affiliated in the inventories. Um, so that's a very large portion uh, that was identified as, as not falling under NAGPRA precisely. So there were, besides that obstacle of, of the culturally unidentified, and I'm going to return to, to this problem in, in a second, there were other obstacles that the university set in the way of repatriation. And this was certainly the perception of tribes 
that these were obstacles that were created to prevent them from receiving their ancestors. And I have to say that that perception looks real to me too. So for one thing, when, when, there, when cases were presented to be considered for repatriation, what happened would be a tribe would consult and would present some evidence or information about why they felt something should be returned to them. And then the, uh, the, then the university would look at, at this and they would also look at the reports of anthropologists. They would read the archeology, span they would read the anthropology, they would look at the bones themselves. And there was, there was a very clear tendency um, to favor scientific or academic um, arguments um, over those of Native Americans who, uh, who had traditional knowledge, for example, or who would bring their own historical knowledge. So a very high bar was set for scientific proof in order um, to have remains affiliated and returned. That was one obstacle. Uh, tribal knowledge or tradition was given less weight. And I should say that in NAGPRA, in the law, we are supposed to take tribal knowledge or tr tradition into account. Um, and it's supposed to have weight, um, but it was given less weight. Tribal representatives were not invited to participate in committee discussions. So after the, um, after the university uh, would create a report about, about the um, potential affiliation, they would give it to a committee and the committee looks it over the NAGPRA advisory committee and makes a determination. And at the time, um, tribal representatives were not invited to come in and, and, and present their side directly to the committee. The committee up until 1917, I'm sorry, 1917, 2017, 2018, uh, was composed of museum curators. And so there was a sense that, there, that the museum had an interest in maintaining its collection. And so um, this committee constellation uh, felt like an obstacle. This, the university didn't really set a time limit on how long it would wait for tribes to object. So if you had a tribe that wanted to make an affiliation, they, they, would, they would ask to make the affiliation and, the, and we would contact other tribes to ask them if they were interested and we would wait for them to respond. And if they didn't respond, then we would, uh, we would, not, we would, we would not affiliate. Um, instead of affiliating, we would not affiliate. So, and then tribes were asked to submit more and more supporting evidence. And in fact, when I first arrived, I was, I was, I saw, I saw a case. I sat in on a case where a tribe had submitted um, their their case fourteen years earlier. And they had been asked to resubmit and give more evidence and give more explanations and, and so on. And so there was a sense on their part that they were being, they were just being stalled. And as I mentioned before, research and teaching continued with culturally unidentified remains. So there were these problems and it meant that so I should say that the University of California, Berkeley is by far, the, as, as the person proudly announced in 1989, the largest collection of Californian, uh, Native Californian material. And the fact that we were so slow and so 
in, in, in returning things and it meant that um, that people were waiting and there were there was just a sense that this repatriation was never going to happen. And so Native people, um, California Native people began to lobby hard um, to get an adjustment to the law. And, and this is sort of typical for California. The Calif- instead of having just the federal law, California developed a law of its own on repatriation, which is called Cal Negra. And the first version of this was passed in 2001. The idea was that Cal Negra would help cover gaps in NAGPRA. And when we talk about gaps, you'll understand that one of the things I'm talking about is the fact that people who were from tribes in California that were not federally recognized did not have the kind of standing that they needed to really press forward and and get their ancestors back. And so this was one of the reasons to pass um, Cal NAGPRA. Also to, to establish more oversight over over actors like the like the like the University of California Berkeley who are not who are not doing the repatriation that they needed to do. Again, in 2018, frustrated at slow progress and obstacles to repatriation, Native Californians successfully lobbied uh, to pass AB 2836, and they gave the Native American Heritage Commission. Um, which is the, the, the state organization, excuse me, oversight. Um, it's not affiliated with the state, but it's uh, approved by the state, including providing assistance uh, to, UC, to the University of California. Now I'm talking about system-wide, not just the University of California, Berkeley, but all of the University of California campuses They wanted to provide assistance um, to expedite repatriation of remaining items. And the law is very specific about what kind of um, what kind of assistance or oversight there should be, because there was a strong feeling that we were not doing our job and we needed to be we needed we needed to have oversight and we needed to have improved process and improved policy. And so this mandated Um, a a committee that the Native American Heritage Commission would appoint. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the University of California at Berkeley had a NAGPRA advisory committee earlier on that was basically um, curatorial. Um, And we changed that in anticipation of this, of this law passing. Um, But the law, the law stipulates that, we should have three university members and three native Californians, one from a non-federally recognized tribe. And um, the policy is going to take effect soon. And we are uh, looking forward to receiving the recommendations for committee members from the American Heritage Commission. The, the law also stipulated that we needed to update our policy, that the University of California needed to update our policy, including this new committee structure, but also <clears throat> making sure that there were appeals processes in place um, and so on. There were a number of stipulations in the, in the law that the policy is expected to, um, to align with. And just to give you a sense, uh, a very brief visual sense, you won't be able to read all the little names on, on this map, but this, the, this is a map um, from the Native American Heritage um, site on the tribes, uh, with the tribes of California. Um, and it gives you a sense of, you know, the living people. These are all living 
people up and down the state um, whose interests um, the, the Native American Heritage Commission wants to represent. And I already mentioned that there were 109 federally recognized tribes um, and another 65 that are recognized by the state, by the Native American Heritage Commission, but not the federal government. And with the new law, we are obliged to consult with the non-federally recognized tribes. Um, so this is a, a piece of the law that, that is gonna be very important for the native people um, in our area, especially. Um, the new university-wide policy. <laughs> I fear like as an administrator, I've become a bit of a policy wonk, but this is a very critical and important set of rules that we now are going to follow. So President Janet Napolitano, the former president, and Chancellor Carol Christ both announced support of a new direction, which is complete repatriation as a primary goal. There had always been a little bit of, you know, tension between the, the complete repatriation idea and sort of maintaining the scientific collection, but that is no longer there. We don't, we no longer allow teaching or research on the ancestral remains or artifacts of native people without express permission from the tribes. The UC system-wide uh, appoints a committee with a strong NAGPRA representation to write a new policy. So there was a committee appointed um, once, you know, with the passage of this uh, new law, UC system-wide appointed a committee with, that had strong native representation uh, as well as representation from the different UC campuses to write this new policy in compliance with the new law. And I, I sat at the table for some of the discussions on the new policy. We had representation um, there from Berkeley, but, but the important representatives were um, native people. In 2017, my boss, uh, Vice Chancellor Randy Katz appointed a new NAGPRA advisory committee. So this was an the loss passing, we could anticipate that we needed to change our practices. And so we took away the old uh, committee and we installed a new one um, that had strong native representation. These are all campus affiliated people um, uh, who have expertise in areas of history and anthropology, native culture, native history. Um, uh, but they are more than half of them are native people as well. Um, the Phoebe Hearst Museum, under the direction of Professor Lauren Kreutz and Dr. Uh, Caroline Fernald, have developed a strategic plan. They're in the process of developing it, or oriented towards decolonization and repatriation. And in 2020, our office um, appointed Dr. Tom Torma as the NAGPRA liaison under the Vice Chancellor. And Tom's job is to um, do outreach to tribes, uh, be the point person for tribal contact, um, arrange for consultations, work with them to return their ancestors, improve Native relations. So he has a very large um, task before him, but he is, the, he is our point person for um, Native American contact in, under, under NAGPRA and CalNAGPRA. And if we look at who all is in the deciding chain or who all is in the, the team working on repatriation. Um, the person who has the ultimate deciding power in repatriation decisions on campus is, is Chancellor Christ. 
And uh, she actually has overturned us one time. So she does use her designing power. Um, the vice chancellor for research, my boss, he's, he's what they call the designee. He's a campus NAGPRA official. So he makes a recommendation about repatriation. He makes a decision about it after hearing the recommendation of the NAGPRA advisory committee. I am uh, Randy's deputy. I very often represent him in uh, Native American affairs. One of the reasons he appointed me to do that was, uh, as Sue Susan, Susan uh, Hoffman mentioned at the beginning, um, I have, have done some research on Native Americans, and he felt that, that, I'm, that I would have interest and engagement there, but he's very much engaged himself as well. Um, as I mentioned, the NAGPRA liaison, the NAGPRA advisory committee, uh, Professor Sabrina Agarwal has been the chair, and she is herself an osteological anthropologist, um, but she is a very principled and ethical one and extremely proactive um, in the cause of repatriation. And then we have the directorship and staff of the Phoebe Hearst um, Museum of Anthropology who are deeply engaged in doing this work and are critical to um, helping us with organizing and working with tribes. I just have a brief list of the NAGPRA advisory committee. I don't have to go through all of them, but we have them up online just to give you a sense of the breadth of representation on the committee and our commitment to representation of native people on the committee. What has happened since July when Tom was appointed? We're trying to step up our actions on repatriation. We've made 12 transfers of control. That's a legal term, but it just means that once we have affiliated something, once we've decided who it belongs to, or they help us decide, then we transfer the control of the ancestors, the object to them legally. And then transfer of possession is when we actually give them um, the ancestors or sacred belongings back. Um, we have three that are waiting approval from the tribes. We have three that are on our calendar to, to keep going. We've made five notices in the federal register. That's when we, we uh, have an inventory item that we're putting up. Um, we have three notices waiting to, for publication. Um, and we have general direction from the campus committee. The campus NAGPRA advisory committee has said that they are going to accept tribal definitions of NAGPRA terms and make consultation and repatriation as simple as possible. So that's a commitment that we have made explicitly. So those are things that have happened within a relatively short time frame. It gives us hope that we are going to be able to move more quickly in the future with the help of tribes and consultation with tribes. And I've been involved in a couple of consultations recently that I feel have, have, um, have gone very, very well. Um, one uh, where we repatriated to the Delaware people, um, for example, um, and we have another, uh, another one that we just completed with the Californian tribe. Some of the struggles that we still have um, in enforcing policy, we, we, one of the requirements of policy is that we make sure that all of the remains that could potentially be um, come under NAGPRA, Cal NAGPRA, um, are in the control um, of the NAGPRA unit and, and not sitting in someone's office or in someone's lab. 
And we were enforcing the policy. We went around and we said, please tell us uh, if you have anything and give it to us. And we made a discovery that some ancestral remains had been held in a lab. And unfortunately, those remains should have gone back and been reburied with other ancestors that had already been returned. So this was very, very painful um, for the tribe and uh, caused further pain and injury. Um, we need to correct our inventories. Uh, as I mentioned, we had 80, you know, 86% were non-affiliated, but that's probably not correct. So we're going to go back and look uh, along with tribes carefully at our inventories and also get things into order. We need to finish um, inspecting our collection physically and have a better record of that collection. I think more broadly, it's really incumbent on us to acknowledge and teach and memorialize the history of California and the university and its relationship to native people. And we must apologize for the actions of the past and for continuing hurts that, that, that go on because of our lack of action, because, because we have um, not followed through. Um, and so we, we, owe, we owe that um, to the native people. And we have to repair relations with tribes and treat them as equal partners. We have some, some good examples of things that have happened that some of you may know about, such as the Breath of Life program, where tribes work together with linguists uh, to preserve and learn their languages um, and also form their own language learning groups. And we've hosted tribal people at the museum so that they um, can have the opportunity to cure, to learn how to maintain care of their ancestors and see what's going on in the museum. We have relationships with tribes where they're working with people in um, agriculture and, 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 and um, natural resources um, to maintain um, agricultural practices or revive uh, agricultural practices. And so there are a number of ways in which, Native knowledge um, and Native wisdom can contribute uh, richly to the life of the university, and we want to commit to treating them uh, as equal partners and as members of our community as well. And we must move without hesitation to restore justice, which is only partially, repatriation is a very big part of that, but there are many other things um, that need to happen um, to repair relationships with Native people. And the Chancellor also has an advisory council that's working on a broader Native American initiative that goes beyond just um, repatriation, but looks at um, inclusion of Native American people in the community, supporting the Native American people in the community, and the kinds of intellectual relationships that uh, partnerships that I was alluding to. Finally, I'm just going to say, um, a couple words about renaming and unnaming. Uh, when when Susan Hoffman first asked me to speak, she said, "Well, can you speak about naming and unnaming?" And I haven't, I haven't, unlike repatriation, I haven't been involved in, in this process, and so I didn't feel like I could speak to it from a very informed point of view. But I, I am going to say just a couple of words on my own thoughts about this, and they should be taken as my own thoughts. First of all, colonization in itself is an act of unnaming and renaming, right? You come, people come upon a land and they start naming it differently and calling it their own. The name California, for example, is thought to be taken from a 16th century Spanish novel. So 
this area where we live that we now call California, obviously was not called California before, and it acquired this name when, um, when colonists arrived. When we talk about the name of a building, which is what we were talking about, um, about unnaming, the memorialization of a person in the name of a building is really the memorialization of an idea that's represented by that person. And in the case of Albert Kerber, it was um, it was this idea about it was it was the discipline of anthropology and the driving force that he was behind the development of that discipline. So there is a Kerber who is a person, Albert Kerber, um, and then there is a Kerber who was who was the, the the thing that motivated the naming of Kerber Hall, <laughs> and we can't separate them. Completely, but some of the people who protested against the, the unnaming of Kerber Hall, you know, were, were, were saying, "Well, Kerber was not such a bad person. You know, he he did good things. He did he did linguistic research. He made sure that some of the languages were preserved. He he wasn't a eugenics guy. You know, I mean, and and these things are true. It, it's not about necessarily about painting Albert Kerber as an absolute villain because." when we talk about responsibility for what happened, it's a shared responsibility. So his name, the objection to his name has to do with the symbolic value of his name. It has to do with some actions that he did as well. I don't want to absolve him of that. So he did urge the collection of Native American ancestors. He was out there urging, you know, that Native Americans be measured and, and so on. But it was very much a, stru- a disciplinary structure and, um, and an intellectual structure and a racist structure um, that motivated these things. And, and that's what is being removed when you move, remove Kerber from Kerber Hall is that entire edifice of racialized understanding of human beings. Um, and so unnaming <laughs> becomes, becomes a kind of act of naming what we're naming and unnaming Kerber Hall is we're naming the ra- the racist underlying underpinnings of what motivated the amassing of a collection of ancestral remains of people who had been disrespected, disregarded and killed, um, disenfranchised. Um, that's what we're naming when we unname something. And we'll see how we rename <laughs> We haven't renamed yet. It's the Anthropology and Art, Art Practice Hall. I, um, but I think that it's important for us to be conscious of the fact that that we too live in history and we too are going to to make mistakes. Um, and uh, it's just it, it, it holding a mirror up to ourselves, uh, I think, is of critical importance in this. So I think that's all I have to share now. That's been a lot. And I see that there are some maybe questions or comments in the chat. I wanted to, um, let's see, I'm escaping from my, see if I can, I don't know if I can enter anything in the chat myself because I was going to, to enter my um, email address. But in any case, maybe Susan, if you had any questions that you had for me that you wanted to, to filter, I, I probably won't have time to answer everything. And that's why I wanted to enter my um, my email and Tom Torma's email in the chat so that people will have direct contact with, with us. But go ahead, Susan. 
Yes, Linda, thank you very much. Um, this is extraordinarily important, uh, the work um, that you've been involved in, and I think a variety of people who are joining us today in looking at the chat, um, there's there's an incredible amount of information and question there. There's also, um, as one might expect, deeply stirring emotions. Um, and I think one of the things that we're dealing with and hearing some of this, and for some of us, the first time, and for many, it's it's a known history, is the role that the university has played and up until now um, has been deeply conflicted um, <laughs> and not moving uh, forward as fast as one might hope. Um, let me just say that we will, this, this uh, there will be a video of today's talk. It will be posted after we've had a chance to, uh, to do the captioning and then we'll post it to the Ali YouTube site and um, it will be available uh, through uh, the Ali at Berkeley website as well. Um, so that means that your slides will be available and the content is, and we will also seek uh, to find a way to also answer some of the questions if we do not get to them today. Um, there were a variety of questions around um, what, um, how to support the non-federally recognized tribes, since that seems to be a fairly um, important part of the process. And I don't know, um, Linda, if that's something you feel comfortable responding to. Um, it, do you feel comfortable responding to that? About, I mean, so, I'm sorry about the about the ability about why they're non-federally why they are not federally recognized or why or how yeah. they achieve federal recognition. Correct. I yeah. mean, if in fact um, there was uh, whether or not it is something that interested people can help support the um, unrecognized tribes in this effort. Um, you know, I think that they can, there, there are different reasons why tribes were not federally recognized. And some people in the chat have alluded to these, and some of them have to do with the peculiar history of California um, and how our treaties with the federal government were different uh, or didn't exist um, in the same way. So federal recognition to some degree depends on things that happened in, in history. But I also want to, this is something I was going to point out, but I, I didn't. Um, we're not talking about ancient history here. This is not a million years ago. <laughs> what happened, as you notice in the timeline I was giving you, the things that, that happened, happened, some of the things that happened, happened in the memories of our parents or our grandparents, right? Um, and so um, in the 1950s, for example, the federal government made a move to, they used the word terminate, they terminated 49, I think it was 49 Californian tribes that had had federal recognition, but they decided to terminate them. And they, they used different kinds of reasons to do that. But the real motivating force in terminating the tribes was that uh, they, wanted to, they wanted Native Americans to assimilate. And this also had to do with the urbanization process. They wanted Native Americans to move off of reservations and move into urban settings. And this was happening during the lifetime of some of the people on the call, probably. I know my Ollie audience. And it was not ancient history. 
And so the process of recognizing and supporting um, Native, Native Californians and other Native tribes, one can do that by working with Native people. Um, you know, I mentioned the Native American Heritage uh, Com- Commission. That's that's the organ that is um, was working to support Californian tribes. You know, becoming familiar with these organizations and with the people who are working in these areas would help, would definitely help. I think just informing oneself about these things. I don't know the intricate. I'm not a I'm not a person who specializes in. Um, uh, in, in achieving federal recognition for tribes, there might be somebody on the call who is, who would put their name in the chat. Um, it's a, it's a, of course the federal government doesn't make it easy. It's terribly difficult. You know? And the kinds of information that a tribe is sometimes asked to produce as evidence um, of who they are, are things that were stolen from them or destroyed by colonists, right? So it's very, very difficult sometimes for a tribe to, to come forward and, and, and make those arguments. And I think one of the reasons that Cal Negpra has really pushed forward the idea of working with non-federally recognized tribes is because the process has been made so difficult and Californians um, deserve recognition for who they are. Um, so that's why they're this is sort of a typical Californian move also to try to get around the federal government <laughs> making our own law. Um, but I think that uh, that was really very, very necessary. So I don't know if I can really answer that question fully, but um, the, it has to do with, with, with treaties. It has to do with history. It has to do with what kinds of relationships can be proven and so on. Well, yeah. let's, let's return to our own um, history as UC Berkeley, um, our colleague Deborah Lustig asked the question um, or makes the comment that there was a lot of resistance from the UC Berkeley faculty on NAGPRA. Is there any, um, anything more that you can offer on what that resistance was about? Yeah, I can offer some, some information on it. Um, I think First of all, that 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 level of resistance has uh, receded very significantly, um, and that things are changing within the field of anthropology, for example. So, if I look at um, my colleague Sabrina Agarwal, who is the um, chair, I mentioned her as the chair of the of the um, of the NAGPRA advisory committee. She is, as I mentioned, an osteological anthropologist, but. The, the anthropology that she practices and the way she thinks about working with human remains is very, very different from the way, not only the way Kruber would have thought of it, but the way some other more recent anthropologists would think about it. So there has been, definitely has been uh, an evolutionary change in the field of anthropology, even in the past 10 to 15 years, that has meant that there is much more attention being paid to the voices of indigenous people and their rights and so on. But there were scientists on campus or you know, people on campus who felt very strongly, and there's some of this in the chat too, <laughs> where people are like, well, this is you know, important scientific material. You know, I mean, I, I had one of the colleagues, I'm not gonna name any names. I had a colleague say to me, um, you're supposed to be the office of research. Why are you inhibiting research? by giving these Native American uh, remains back to people and they'll just be buried and we'll lose all of this 
incredibly valuable genetic uh, research material. And, but I think that, I mean, my understanding of this is like, there's a lot of really interesting genetic material over in the cemetery in Oakland too. You wouldn't allow someone to go in there with a backhoe and take people out of there because there is interesting material. We understand that it's a crime. It's a crime even to draw, you know, like to put graffiti on a gravestone, right? So, so it definitely is a crime in our culture to use a person's body after death in a way uh, for which they have not given permission. And the descendants of people are also allowed to make decisions about this as well. So I think that we can't make this about science. <laughs> it has to be about human rights. But there, there have been people who have wanted to, um, to argue and I mean, to, I, I, will be, I will be very fair about this, very open about this. I have also spoken to some Native people who say, well, we, we, we would like to have that information. We would like to have you know, research done. But they're very much in the minority, first of all. Mm-hmm. And second of all, that would be their choice. It should not be our choice as to whether we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's why we have a stipulation that we have to have permission. And I, I want to say one thing I saw fleetingly in the chat um, was a comment from, from, from Patrick Naranjo, who, who works with Native graduate students on campus, that, that it's disturbing even to hear about these things. You know, I, and I, I want to acknowledge that. I, it's very hard to talk about these things. And I know that for Native people and for other people too, that it's very disturbing to hear about about the way that these ancestral remains were collected and treated. And so I, I acknowledge that, that it is difficult um, and that, emo- that the emotions are very um, deep. Linda, thank you. We have time just for one more question. And what I'd like to do is go to the first question that had been posed as you were speaking, which oh. was from Leticia Miller who is the vice chairwoman to everyone, who um, asked the question, will there be an investigation to find the missing items? Um, I think, Leticia, I'm not really 100% sure if you're alluding to what I mentioned about, uh, I mean, okay, so first of all, there, there, there have been missing items um, and uh, that she that she may be aware of, um, and this was one of the things that um, happened because of the the uh, the poor record keeping in the past, and um, and so I think that there are at least um, a couple of things that I know of, a couple of items that have been missing that we are looking for, and that we are one of the things in the policy is that we are obligated to tell tribes. If we have, if there's something missing, if we redo our inventory and we find that there's something gone, we have to notify them so that they know. But then the other piece is trying to find where the items are. And um, I mentioned that part of the policy also was to um, to go to go to the university com- community and ask people um, to well not ask require them <laughs> to return anything that they may be holding. That is a that could be Native American, um, so that we can make sure that everything is gathered together and we can keep the ancestors together. I don't know if that answers your uh, question, Leticia, but um, my my email is in the chat. So if you want to follow up, 
um, please do that. Linda, thank you very much. I think we've we've gone a bit over time, but I um, we really appreciate that we had this hour and we have all of the the ways in which you are um, teaching us more about what matters. And um, we'll continue to look on on how Ali members specifically might be better educated about what's at stake. Um, we've had the good for- fortune of having. Um, classes and um, speaker opportunities with Corinna Gould and with Tony Platt, um, also, you know, with with others. Um, So I'm glad to add this uh, to the body of work and to suggest that there's other things that um, we can do in, in informing the Ali membership and thinking further about engaged citizens, how we can be most helpful. So thank you everyone for joining us today. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.